over the last year, we've been serving in Bolivia, Cochabamba, Bolivia, with an organization that serves child and adolescent victims of sexual violence. Uh, so as I embark on the beginning of the sermon, I just want to acknowledge that that is the subject matter we'll be dealing with. So for children or anyone with personal experience, um, that's going to be part of what we're addressing this morning. Um, we've tried to prepare it in a way that's not explicit or inappropriate for this setting. Um, The story of Hagar is one that has been on my mind, particularly during the last year, but uh, also in the years before that. Um, It's part of a much longer and more complex story, and we actually didn't hear the most troublesome parts of the story in the reading this morning. Uh, I would invite you to read kind of that uh, Genesis 16 through 21 portion of scripture to get a fuller sense of her story uh, and her relationship to Abram and Sarah. I think it highlights some of the same things that uh, Todd mentioned in a sermon a few weeks ago where he was addressing the story of David and Bathsheba. And as Todd noted, it's only recently that female commentators, biblical scholars, theologians have called to our attention something that many, many men over millennia have ignored uh, or missed, that this is a story of sexual assault. When the king calls you in with guards, you don't have a choice of saying no. And in the same way, the story of Hagar is a story of sexual assault. And it was during my time in seminary that that was really brought to my attention um, by some wonderful female theologians and biblical scholars. And I've begun to think differently about that. And it's been very much in the forefront of my thought over the last year as we've served in the setting that we've served in. It's a complicated and layered story. There's a lot of elements of injustice uh, Abram and Sarah are heroes of our faith, and they should be, and rightfully so. Uh, and they're the heroes of faith for Jews and Christians and Muslims alike. And we don't want to bash them, but there is sexual assault in this story, and they are the ones involved in perpetrating it. Could be a whole sermon series. I'm going to use it as an introduction to our sharing about Bolivia. Hagar. Hagar is a slave that is brought with Abraham and Sarah from Egypt. She's removed from her homeland. She's forced into service in a family that's of a culture that's not her own. She's a young woman, probably very young, maybe a teenager. And in the context of her service of Abraham and Sarah, who are quite old at this time, there is a decision that's made to fulfill God's promise to Abraham and Sarah for a child that as is culturally acceptable at the time, Hagar will bear a child with Abraham. And in bearing a child for Abraham, because she is Sarah's slave, that child will be Sarah's child. And everyone will understand that child as Sarah's child. And so Sarah proposes this. And Abraham indeed has a child with Hagar. And in the midst of that, jealousy and conflict arise, and Hagar ends up in the wilderness. And it's in that context of the wilderness that we hear the first passage that was read this morning. She returns, serves Abraham and Sarah, gives birth to the child Ishmael. Ishmael begins to grow up. Everybody understands Ishmael as the child that God has promised until God comes along again and says, no, no, there's another child and it's really going to be Sarah's own child that she gives birth to. And then when Isaac is born, conflict again arises in the home 
And it's there that the story picks up again, and Hagar a second time finds herself in the wilderness, this time with a child rather than just pregnant. And in both of these stories, we see God intervening on behalf of Hagar, arriving on the scene. Hagar is a young woman. She's a slave. She's a foreigner. She's outcast from her own society and then outcast in the society that's foreign to her where she's serving. She is profoundly separated from all of her community, and she's on the verge of death and fearing the death of her child. And twice God intervenes, and in the first of these interventions, there's this incredible moment where Hagar names God El Roy, which means the one who sees, the one who sees me. You are the God who sees me. And in the scriptural narrative, this is the first time that a person gives a name to God. Up to this point, God has given names to people for which they call God. But it's the first time that a person has the audacity to name God. And she's a pregnant slave from Egypt, a young woman who is the victim of sexual violence. And she is the one who names God. You are the God who sees me. I think that's incredibly profound. It speaks to the place of marginalized people and victims of sexual violence in God's story. As a follower of Jesus, I love the fact that this theme continues in his life and in his ministry. And we heard just a couple verses from the Gospel of Matthew this morning that comes after an interesting context. For us as Anabaptists, the Sermon on the Mount holds an important place in our faith and understanding of of God's call on our lives in this world. And so in Matthew 5 through 7, we have this intense teaching on what it means to really follow God in this world. And then after that, Jesus goes on what can only be described as a healing spree. He goes and he heals a bunch of people who are marginalized in their society. A leper, the centurion's servant, Peter's mother-in-law, a demon-possessed man, a paralytic, a young girl that's brought back to life, a woman who's been bleeding for years and years, two blind men, and a mute man. These are people who would have been outcasts and ostracized. And again, each of their stories serves at least one sermon. They're the people who have been marginalized and pushed away. And then Jesus calls, in the midst of all of this, to be one of his followers, one of his disciples, Matthew, a tax collector, another ostracized, marginalized person, And then we hear what was read this morning by Larry. When Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion for them. You are the God who sees me. Over and over again, we hear from the marginalized people of our world. This idea of seeing and being seen has been important to us over the last year. As we think of the story of Hagar and God seeing her, And the resonance between her story and the stories of many of the girls that we worked with in the program over this last year, seeing Jesus in the way that he sees those on the margins and has compassion on them. I think of this congregation and the many stories that each person here has of the places they have served and the people they have seen, those on the margins who they have reached out to. I think of the Monday night meals and the way that this congregation talks about those meals. And in that, it isn't, only, it isn't only that we see and we serve and we have compassion, but also that in serving, we are shaped and formed and impacted 
by the people who we are serving. And God uses those people to shape and to teach us. And it's with that context that we want to share some of our experiences from the last year. Some of the things that we learned and how we were shaped as we served among the people of Bolivia. We're going to have some photos that will be up here. Uh, we're not going to actually explain them as they go, but they give a little context and form to what we'll be sharing. Um, so a quick just a review of what we were doing for those who might not remember. We were working this past year with Foundation Abriza Hope. Um, Fundación Una Brisa de Esperanza. Um, and when we were in Bolivia, we ended up working mostly at two different sites. A center for child and youth survivors of sexual violence called CUBE. Um, Centro Una Brisa de Esperanza. And also an early childhood elementary school called SEV. And they had like birth through third grade. Um, and SEV stood for Comunidad Educativa para la Vida, Community Education for Life. Um, so both programs are originally part of MAP International, um, but have since then branched out. Um, and there is a picture of Brisa. I think, I don't know if you saw the picture of Brisa and me in the blue shirts. Brisa is the one that started those programs. So our work mostly focused on capacity building. Um, so we didn't have a lot of direct work with the children and youth in the programs, but um, we mostly focused on taking photos for grants and reports, translating report information, collecting stories and testimonies, um, collecting data, providing trainings for the staff and capacity building. And that way, um, we did trainings on like introduction to social work, trauma-informed care, active listening, self-care, secondary trauma, and yoga. Actually, um, John led weekly yoga, which was an unexpected task that he had uh, for the staff at the school. Um, another unexpected task that we ended up helping a lot with was a conference that they held. It was the first international conference against sexual violence, um, and we ended up really being involved in that, working with the speakers and the project. Um, the other main part of our work was working with short-term teams and interns, so we were sort of as house parents and group facilitators, um, helped with processing and discussion times for the groups, crisis intervention, conflict mediation, like logistics and stuff. Um, so most of it was more program level work, but thankfully we were able to build relationships with some of the kids in the programs, get to know them, and we got really close to the staff. This picture is the, the um, Kube staff. Um, and then the next one is the school. And then the next one is the, the clinic staff and the office staff. Um, so we became really close with all of those people and missed them a lot. Obviously, signing up for this year of service, we went in in part because we have a passion for uh, working to end sexual violence against children and youth. But much of what we learned was about uh, that very subject. And our, uh, our passion for serving uh, victims and survivors of sexual violence deepened, and our understanding um, of the subject deepened and strengthened our commitment. The pervasiveness of sexual violence in Bolivia is the highest within the Americas, uh, although it's high everywhere. Um, one in three girls and one in four boys experience sexual violence by the age of 18. 
the overwhelming majority of those cases of sexual violence are, as is the case elsewhere in the world, including here, committed by trusted people that are close to the victim and to their families. Uh, examples, fathers, stepfathers, teachers, pastors, family friends, neighbors, etc. Because of this and because of the nature of predators themselves and the way they approach victims, it's incredibly difficult to prevent uh, sexual violence. And it's essential that we do all that we can do, such as child protection policies, which our church actively works with, uh, to prevent it. But it is essentially impossible to fully prevent, which is a really difficult thing to face and to accept and to respond to. And so one of the things that we learned or become, became more solidified for us is that open communication is essential. Talking particularly with children as they are growing and developing about safe touch, about healthy relationships, about boundaries, uh, understanding their own bodies and learning sexuality in age-appropriate ways is so very important. And it's also important that in that communication, we do everything we can to establish safe places and opportunities for children to break the silence if they are ever victims of sexual violence, and that if and when they do break the silence, that we as a community, we as individuals, as family members, that we are ready to hear and believe them. We learned that one of the greatest barriers is our cultural aversion to believing children, And that translates also more generally into believing victims of sexual violence. But we tend to believe adults over children. And so being ready to always believe a child when they share something. And also as we've returned to the U.S., it's been very difficult to be reminded of the universality of sexual violence, including against children and youth uh, in various current events that are going on. And so we're reminded that the work that we're doing in Bolivia that we've done over the last year translates very well into the context that we live in here. I'm just going to share a story of Maria. This is Maria in the picture. That's not her real name. Um, and whenever we show pictures of kids from Kube, you won't see their faces, um, just faces of kids from the school, um, because in Kube, they're survivors of sexual violence, and so their identities are protected. Um, so Maria was 11 years old and lived with her older sisters in an apartment next to her mom and her mom's boyfriend. Um, her mom also often had parties and gatherings at the house where a lot of like friends and family came who were really close, really tight. Um, they felt like a big extended family for Maria. One day, Maria's sister was sick and she needed medicine, and Maria volunteered to go to the pharmacy. On her way to the pharmacy, one of these guys who would spend time with her family offered her a ride in his pickup truck. And because he was like family to her, she didn't think twice, like she accepted and and got in. Um, However, that was the first time that he started violating her. Um, And after he dropped her off, he told her not to tell anyone or her mom would be hurt. So she was scared and ashamed and she didn't say anyone. And she started pushing her family away from her to try to keep them safe. Um, For her, the abuse continued and escalated for the next year because he would find her on her walk home from school, pick her up, take her to a hotel, um, and then take, you know, drop her off to go home. And she continued to, you know, keep this secret because she was trying to protect her family. When she was 12, Maria realized she was pregnant and still didn't want to tell anyone. She was afraid until she couldn't hide her pregnancy anymore. And she eventually had to tell one of her sisters. 
Thankfully, in this situation, Maria's sisters believed her story and took her to Kube, um, the center where we worked. Unlike many boys and girls who don't receive that sort of support, a lot of times parents won't believe their kids. Well, they'll say, you know, you're lying. How could this person, like this person would never hurt a fly. I don't believe you. Or you must have been too seductive, that kind of thing. Um, so she was able to break the silence and get help from the lawyers, the psychologists, and the social workers at Kube who provide free services. Um, and they helped her lift that burden off of her shoulders and be a part of a broader community. She was able to get help with the process of having her baby and preparing for that, for getting to her medical appointments, for rebuilding trust in her relationships with her family, starting the legal process against her aggressor, um, and starting to work through her own trauma. Um, and one of the big ways that she did that was through the bakery. Um, Kube has a lot of alternative forms of therapy that use the body, um, and it's a way to start before you can really talk about the trauma. Um, and so this is something she became really passionate about, and she attended multiple times a week. Um, and now she has a healthy baby boy. She's re-enrolled in middle school. Um, she's built a, a network of supportive relationships, and she has a small pastry business where she makes pastries and sells them at a school near her house to support her son. There's a number of things that Maria's story highlights for us. Uh, one is that sexual violence often begins at an early age, which was something that I think surprised us a little bit to realize how frequent and early that is. But it's often not discovered uh, except in cases when it's girls and they become pregnant. And uh, for many, they go years without breaking the silence, maybe decades. Many never break the silence. It also shows that aggressors are indeed frequently trusted people who have very close relationships with the victims and their families, and that those relationships make it often very hard for people in the family and the support network to believe the victim over the aggressor. It also shows that serious threats often make it incredibly hard for the victim to break the silence. And the support of, at minimum, one family member, anyone in the support network, but particularly a family member, uh, believing someone when they break the silence is so incredibly important to their survival and their healing. It also shows that the process of trauma recovery and rebuilding of one's life is long and includes many important aspects. And Kube has worked really hard to create a trauma-informed process that provides a safe space for children and for youth to take this journey in a, uh, at an appropriate pace and within a supportive community of staff and of peers. And this, in the case of Kube, includes these alternative forms of therapy, social activities, formal therapy, vocational training, and a really wonderful uh, interdisciplinary team that provides support through the legal process. And as we got to observe this play out over a year, we saw many people work through a significant part of this process. And we were moved as we saw uh, these children and youth become what, what people have often referred to as wounded healers, those who have become survivors of the violence they have experienced. And as they have worked out their own healing, they have become the best people to offer healing and provide healing to others. And we were inspired by both the staff and the program participants as they became these wounded healers that offered healing to others in the way they had experienced uh, a, um, 
a survey that uh, um, a confidential survey that was done among the staff that we worked with showed that at least 80 percent of our coworkers had experienced sexual violence over the course of their lives, uh, which is not surprising given that they are the ones that are inspired to do this work. But over 80 percent, and one of the one of the situations that uh, I remember really vividly was being in the center one day when a girl came in crying, uh, just. Um, out of control emotions, clearly distraught. And it was the other girls, her peers, the ones who had gone further down their journey of healing, they came and surrounded her and embraced her and provided a safe space for her to work through that moment of crisis in her healing process. And that was just one of these moments that we saw over and over again as they were the ones that offered incredible healing. Those that are marginalized, that are victimized, become the ones who offer healing. Another example of that is the Youth Network uh, Against Sexual Violence. And they're the ones that lead the August 9 march. And for anyone who followed our blog, we began and ended our year in Bolivia with the August 9 march, which is a national march uh, that's recognized by the government because of the work of Cube. Uh, it's a national march against sexual violence. And they're the ones that lead it and organize it and speak and contact schools and government officials and people to come out. And they're the ones responsible for literally thousands of people coming out and marching in Cochabamba and throughout the country against sexual violence every year. And it was amazing to watch them go from the ones who appeared to be the walking dead when they came into the center because of the trauma they had experienced to being the ones who were speaking from a stage, talking to their peers, speaking to government officials, being the ones who were addressing in a public way sexual violence and calling attention to it. I also think of the hair and nail salon, uh, the peluqueria, and the reposteria, which is the bake shop. And the place that these two programs have within uh, Kube, they're overseen by the psychology department, and the women that work in those programs are incredible people who all themselves are survivors of sexual violence. Most of them have very little education. They're not trained psychologists, but they understand well what it means to provide a safe and healing place. And so they are the ones that in many cases we learn from to see what it really meant to offer compassion and to respond to those in need and to create a place where those walking dead could learn to laugh again, learn to have community again, learn to have trusting and meaningful and good relationship again. Um, one of the things we did notice is that the staff at Kube and Sev, the school, um, worked a lot and often way beyond the required hours, even when they were asked to go home. Um, people had such passion for the work, and I think because of their own personal experiences with sexual violence, they wanted to create meaning and provide healing for others. Um, and we were really moved and inspired by this because, you know, they were working for very little pay, a long, long hours in a really difficult field. Um, but it also highlighted the reality of secondary trauma and vicarious trauma. Um, and staff reported having nightmares about children on their cases, not being able to see fathers and children on the streets without being suspicious, um, having difficulty with trust and relationships, and like generally being perpetually exhausted, anxious, jumpy, stomach problems. Um, and so we didn't anticipate focusing on that, but one of the things we ended up doing a lot was trainings and work on secondary and vicarious trauma, helping people understand what that is and that it's a legitimate thing and they should be able to recognize those symptoms in themselves um, and the importance of taking care of their own personal health and well-being 
as an essential part of their ability to care for the children and youth um, through their own self-care practices, which is how John ended up teaching yoga. So um, we became inspired to serve with passion ourselves, but also learned you know, the importance of taking care of ourselves so that we can give in a more sustainable way. And for us, one of the most life-giving personal care aspects of our year was our dog, Ami, who showed up just when we needed him, right after our Spanish teacher had died. Um, and so we were grieving that, and we're very happy to have Ami. wanted to just highlight a number of the beautiful things that we encountered during our year because a lot of what we dealt with was very difficult uh, as we uh, supported people in their journey of trauma healing. Uh, some of the beautiful things that we experienced included uh, the setting of our house, uh, the birds, uh, sadly Todd's, well, wonderfully Todd is off doing a wedding, sadly Todd's not here to see the birds, uh, birds at our compound, um, Ami, our dog, uh, was definitely a highlight and gave us joy. The Cristo, which is the tallest Christ statue in the world, uh, taller than the one in Rio by, by a very small margin, uh, offered wonderful views of the city, and we frequently were up there as we had visitors or worked with short-term teams and would take them up. Uh, we enjoyed the incredible and beautiful cultural expressions that Bolivia has as a highly indigenous culture and country. It's maintained so, m- so much of the music and the dance uh, the traditional arts like textiles, uh, and there's also a really wonderful government program for public art, and there's incredible murals throughout the city that often uh, we found very meaningful in their content as well. We also enjoyed the food and the cultural uh, pride of Cochabambinos. Cochabamba is a UNESCO World Gastronomic Site, uh, known worldwide for its food. Uh, yahua is a spicy sauce that is made with a mortar, a rocking mortar and pestle uh, from those ingredients. It's very delicious. Uh, and along with the wonderful food, the markets uh, that we would go to on a weekly basis were beautiful, really stunning uh, in their multitude of colors and diversity of produce. We also enjoyed our relationships with the people who were incredibly hospitable and wonderful to relate to, including our neighbors uh, and the teams that we worked with who became our friends. Another highlight towards the end of our time was getting to go separately uh, for two different uh, times to Morachata, which was just over the mountains from us. We saw snow-capped mountains from our backyard, but it was a four-hour drive to get to this very rural community where MAP had been working for about 30 years. Uh, and traveling over it offered wonderful uh, mountain views, and there we got to see people in the very traditional rural way of life. And in my time there, I got to go along as a translator for external program evaluators, and so spent four days intensively going from community to community to hear the people talk firsthand about uh, the way that their lives have changed through the work of the staff there. And in that context, I got to see uh, and, and what they're working with, they're working with the Chagas disease primarily, which is passed by Vinchugas, bugs, sometimes called the kissing disease, kissing bugs, uh, which is, is fatal, uh, can be fatal. And in working at this, they have worked at women's empowerment and developing women's leadership, which is non-existent in these rural communities, as men completely run the families, completely run the communities. Uh, but as women have been empowered and they work with women's groups, 
uh, the women have gained influence and have actively transformed their communities beyond just the Chagas disease and the house improvements. Uh, they have done all sorts of advocacy as a result because they have gained a voice in this process. And it was amazing to go around and hear these women talk about how now, because they're making a difference in their communities, their husbands will take care of the children and get them ready for school. Their husbands will go out and take care of the sheep, will do the dishes, will make the food so that they can go do their work and have their meetings because they're transforming their society and their culture. And the governments, when they have fairs and activities, will invite these women's groups to come and present not just about Chagas, but about sexual violence and education and health and all sorts of things. And it's amazing to see the pride that they have in the transformation that they are a part of. Uh, One example is, I, I don't know the word, I didn't learn Quechua, but it translates to this very strong sense of, this is mine. And as they would present their houses and they would talk about their work, they would do this. They would go, I did this. This is mine. Uh, and it was just a very profound thing to see the way that the team was working in this community and these women were gaining their voice and transforming their societies. Um, and we didn't do a lot with that project. It was just we got to learn about it and see it. Um, the last thing we want to talk about is appreciation for you as a congregation. Um, just ex- We wanted to express our Thanks to you for your prayers, your financial support, your encouragement, um, people checking in on us during the last year. Uh, it really meant a lot. Um, and we thought about you while we were there, and we brought you this textile. Um, this is a fabric that women use for women and men use for everything: carrying stuff to market, carrying their babies, you know, having picnics or whatever. Um, and these colors reminded us of the warmth and the light that we feel in this congregation. So, uh, hopefully, you can enjoy it. Um, and also just to say, we'll, we'll talk about what's next for us at a later time, but we're going to go back to Cochabamba with Mennonite Central Committee for three years, and training starts November 5th in Akron. So seeing and being seen, uh, we were moved to think about how, over the last year, how God consistently sees and responds with compassion to those on the margins, including child and adolescent victims of sexual violence, and that in Jesus' example, we too are invited into uh, seeing those who are on the margins that society tends to ignore, to push away, to cover up their stories, and that in those encounters, if we're open to it, we are invited to change and to be transformed ourselves. Um, There's going to be a song of response, Um, and just to give a little context for it, this song is Asnos Instrumentos de Tu Paz, it's like Make Us Instruments of Your Peace, um, based on the prayer of St. Francis of Assisi, yeah. Um, and it was, it's a significant song for us because every Monday morning we would meet with all the teams from all the different projects and we would sing together and pray together and then share program updates. Um, and this is one of our favorite songs that we would sing during that time because it reminded us of our role in bringing peace in situations of trauma and violence. As we sing it, you'll, you'll have the opportunity to sing in either Spanish or English, uh, but we wanted to give just a taste of the Spanish, um, and we'll see how much my Spanish atrophied in a month and a half. Asnos instrumentos de tu paz, donde haya huido, llevemos amor. Donde haya enjoría, tu perdón, señor. Donde haya duda, fe en ti. Maestro, ayúdanos a no buscar. 
Querer ser consolados como consolar. Ser entendidos como entender. Ser amados como amar.